effective pain relievers when wars were fought with swords and spears. Medicinal drugs have influenced world history, but it's also been sided with violence and criminality. We briefly explore the history of drugs, most specifically opium. And with us is podcast host of The History of Drugs in Society, Eugene Leventhal. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited for the conversation. Firstly, Eugene, how did you get interested in this topic? Share to us. Yeah, so my interest uh, came more from the perspective of just being generally interested in the world of organized crime. Uh, And though it was never anything formal um, as part of my education or anything like that, since being a kid growing up in the New York area, in general, I was born in Moscow when I was still in the Soviet Union era. You know, stories of corruption, of organized crime were always things that felt very uh, palpable, even though I, you know, my family and I had no direct involvement in any of these. So it was just always something that kind of was around me as I was growing up. And that sparked a long interest in, in reading about it and learning about it throughout my life. But then a couple of years ago, about a year and a half ago at this point, while I was in grad school and procrastinating some work and in turn watching Narcos Mexico, uh, I just realized that my personal interests, you know, especially growing up in New York, were very much on the Italian mafia uh, coming from uh, Italy, Sicily, southern Italy into the New York area. But I realized on a global context, there was a lot I really did not know in terms of why did organized crime look the way it did? How did they make their money? How did they come up in the first place? And so I started kind of looking into that information in the context of you know what they get into in Narcos in terms of the, the, the transition of more of the Plaza-based system in Mexico to kind of a, uh, a, a syndicated coordinated effort that later fell apart and kind of created the landscape of the current view of cartels that we're aware of there. But as I started reaching it or, you know, exploring in uh, this information in the context of Mexico, you know, looking into where these substances came from, I realized, you know, cocaine was coming from South America, things like heroin were coming from Asia. And then I kind of just kept going down further and further down this rabbit hole until I realized that I was kind of spending so much time looking into it that I should at least make an independent study out of it and try to mm-hmm. make it as part of my graduate degree. So I did a I, I did a full semester exploration of the history of opium and as it pertained to the specific fentanyl crisis in Estonia uh, from 2001 and on. And then, you know, I, I finished my grad program in, in May of 2019. And I, I just kept kind of coming back to the books about the topic and, you know, spending my free time reading about it. So I just realized that I, I clearly have an interest beyond a one semester term paper. So I figured to, you know, I, I wanted to commit to this longer term project with the podcast. So I have a structure to keep exploring the, the history and to actually just get to talk to people who are, uh, you know, actively researching and full time working in the space, not just kind of a, an enthusiast like I am. You mentioned that it's also helped you um, accomplish your uh, degree. The degree that I did was a public policy and management degree from the Heinz College at Carnegie Mellon University. And in general, there we're not required to take on an independent study of any, uh, of any specific kind, but we do have that option in case we have something we want to explore in more depth than we can as a, you know, as a project in our coursework. So I proposed this to a couple of different faculty members, and I got to work with my uh, with my wonderful advisor, Silvio Borzutsky, on it. Uh, and I wanted to kind of combine a bit of the pure historical lens 
which is what you know my podcast is currently starting off with and part of what we're uh, going to be talking about today in terms of just you know where did this start but what i really wanted to get to with a specific uh, independent study was let's really look at something in the more modern context and not just something as broad as the opioid crisis in the US because that is a huge topic uh, and and pretending to be able to tackle that in the time i had would have just been doing a you know a disservice to the the research around it so after talking to another professor uh, at, at Heinz, whose name is John Hawkins, he's actually written, uh, he's been part of a number of books and massive efforts through, uh, I know through Rand and others uh, in terms of drug research. And I got to speak to Professor Hawkins uh, about the current landscape of kind of fentanyl and opioid issues internationally. And he was the one who kind of put the fentanyl crisis in Estonia on my radar. And being someone who's of, uh, you know, I was born in the former Soviet Union, uh, I'm able to read Russian. I figured I could, you know, look into both from a, a Russian perspective and an English perspective into what I could find on the topic. So yeah, that, that was a, fa a, a very interesting mm -hmm. um, element to look into. And I, it was great getting to learn and to reach out to some of the folks who actually work in the government and work on the ground in harm reduction services there to kind of hear how things are going uh, on the ground in Estonia. And I, I do want to circle back with those folks uh, now that it's been kind of a year later. Very fascinating. And I'm sure we'll get to the um, relations of opium to modern times by the end of uh, this episode. But really briefly, when did the relationship of opium start with people? Yeah. So in terms of the specific origins, they're, they're hard to pin down in terms of giving an exact date, uh, especially because Papaver somniferum, or that, that's the uh, formal name of the opium poppy, the opium poppy is not believed to have been in its exact form in nature. So that uh, that's another way of saying that it was the result of either cross-pollination or intentional kind of cross-breeding and planting between plants. So given that it had this kind of uh, very human component to its origin, you know, it's very easy to say that, you know, we've coexisted for at least seven, 8,000 years, but the nature of that relationship is something that is very unclear in the early days. Uh, and, you know, was it a pure accident of this natural poppy existed in the wild? And then as things like wheat and other good agricultural goods uh, were being harvested, that there was just a natural cross-pollination there? Or was it something more intentional on the side of humans? You know, that's all for the world of speculation there. But what we do know is that as of roughly four or 5,000 years ago, there are signs in, in certain cities in Spain, uh, in Switzerland, around Italy, there are some signs that it was being used ritualistically. Uh, and, you know, is that to help ease any pain? Is that purely as part of the ritual? Again, you know, trying to answer those questions becomes a bit speculative, just given the lack of firsthand resources from that time. But nonetheless, you know, even as we progress a little further to the times of the, the Sumerians, uh, the Greeks, Egyptian, or eventually the Roman empires, you know, we see that opium was definitely used medicinally. And as of about 3000 years ago, we already have some texts that show an understanding of the fact that opium could be used for pain relief. Um, and though there are no uh, specific reasons to believe that there were levels of addiction at this point, um, you know, already by the Roman Empire, uh, there was clearly some writing indicating that people understood that taking too much of this 
could lead to negative consequences. Uh, and that was within both, the, I believe the Egyptian, Greek and Roman empires already had some kind of some writings alluding to the fact that, hey, this isn't just all uh, you know, fun and sunshine when it comes to this, there are some downsides as well. You mentioned in one of your episodes, podcast episodes, that Alexander the Great has also used opium. Um, shed us a little light about that. Yeah. So, I mean, with someone like Alexander, there's two components to that, right? One is in terms of who was he learning from? And one of his famed tutors was Aristotle. Uh, and Aristotle, you know, there are, there are uh, records and books that show that, you know, he was already aware of the fact that when you take the opium poppy, if you slice it and you make some careful incisions on the side of it, this latex comes out of it or this gum comes out of it, this milky white fluid. And as you let that fluid dry and collect that, that's sort of the, the natural form of opium that's actually harvested from the poppy that grows in the ground. So Aristotle was already writing about how he was aware of and that this was already uh, a knowledge that was you know, out in the world already at that time. So on the one hand here, you know, Alexander had exposure to someone who was on the forefront of scientific and general you know, thinking and exploration at that point. So uh, if there were goods such as opium that were being used for pain relief or anything like that, you know, he was lucky to be educated by someone who would definitely know about it. Um, the other component of it is, uh, and, and I do just want to very clearly say that there are no signs at all that indicate that Alexander may have been abusing it in any kind of way or using it for anything that was not purely pain management. But, you know, there was one thing that I, I read off in, uh, in the podcast. I read this quote that talked about the list of injuries that Alexander got. Uh, just, I think it was in a single campaign. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the last one I remember was getting a lung through or excuse me, getting an arrow through the chest that ended up puncturing his lung. You know, like, yeah, I, I have naturally would want some very strong painkillers if I was in his shoes at that point. So it, it's very reasonable to assume that given this exposure to someone who is very aware of opium uh, and its uh, pain and its sort of pain healing benefits, as well as just being in a position where he was constantly just in physical pain due to the nature of his campaigns and who he was, it seems very likely that he would have been uh, using it at that point. Right. And looking deeper into opium or poppy seeds, was this a landlocked or country locked uh, sort of um, plant that you grow? In terms of where it grows, it does need the papaver somniferum, the opium poppy itself, it does need a certain environment within which to grow. It needs to be certain temperature range, needs to be certain elevation. Uh, I believe mountainous is, ge is generally preferable. And uh, I'm, I'm not a botanist or a chemist, so please don't press too hard on, on the specifics of why it is in those, in those conditions. Mm -hmm. But it, it does have a certain set of conditions that it needs to be able to grow in the first place. Now, those conditions are not unique to a single country or a single set of countries. Uh, you know, in, in modern context, places like Afghanistan or Myanmar uh, or India are some of the largest growers, the former two illegally, India being the largest grower of legal opium in the world. Um, but, you know, throughout history, these countries have ranged from England, France, Romania, Iran, Pakistan. Uh, it's really been kind of uh, as well as Egypt, as mentioned earlier. So it really has been a wide swath of countries where this has happened. Uh, historically, it's more, uh, I would say, up until about 1400, generally found where there was a connection to trade 
and inevitably as part of that to medicine, to, uh, you know, to some versions of entertainment, to general goods, you know, that kind of link with trade early on was the quiet relationship that it maintained, mainly as on the tool belt of, uh, you know, a way to deal with pain uh, up until really, I would say, the late 14 into 1500s. Mm -hmm. And historically speaking, at that time, was it more widely known as this medicinal sort of drug or did it have this taboo that we have today in that time? Yeah, I think one, you know, another example I can come back to from antiquity to talk about that is that with Marcus Aurelius. Uh, and he was obviously famous Roman emperor, uh, still known for books like Meditations and, uh, you know, other uh, more philosophical work in relation to Stoic philosophy. But, you know, his, uh, his physician was someone by the name of Galen. And Galen, at that time, you know, for I think at least a thousand years afterwards, was a very prominent figure in the world of medicine. If I remember correctly, I think he actually had more surviving writing than either Plato or Aristotle, just to really give you a sense of how pro prolific the guy was. So, you know, Marcus Aurelius was in a position where he had someone who was able to tend to him, but there are very clear writings from Galen that talk about he would he Marcus Aurelius would use it to such an extent that signs of what we now know as withdrawal were noted, right? So there were already very, I don't want to say clear cut as if this was, you know, in a handbook clearly passed along everyone in the populace, but at least amongst the more senior level doctors like Galen, who were in these prominent cultural and social roles, uh, doctors like that were very much aware of it. And they also promoted the sale of it in druggist stalls that existed around Rome and other parts of the empire. That having been said, there are absolutely no records that I've come across that indicate that there was anything along the lines of the kind of large scale social usage that we see that exists across multiple countries. There were, at, yeah, at, up until I would say the 1500s, there might be some very harder to find examples of very isolated, uh, slightly increased usage, but for it to become a multi-country or a fully international phenomenon, that wouldn't really happen until in full-blown form until the 1800s uh, with the evolution of colonialism and, you know, leading up to things like the opium wars and whatnot. But up until that point, and I would say that transition of when, you know, opium went just from being kind of a, a, a quiet part of the tool belt that there was to deal with medicinal issues evolving into a full-blown, you know, economic engine in its own right for the British Empire. That kind of transition really happened between 1498, when the Portuguese first got to Asia and started colonizing there, uh, you know, through the 1800s and uh, when the British really, uh, yeah, kind of stepped up their efforts around the colonization and how much money they were making from it. Right. And you mentioned um, the Opium Wars. Now, this is one of the uh, significant um, points in history in regards to opium. What happened? Um, why? How did this opium alone seem to bring a whole country such as China to its knees? Yeah, I mean, the and for the overall context of something like the Opium Wars, I would very much, especially uh, if you're in a position where you, you're not really sure of what the Opium Wars is, don't look into it just from the perspective of what it means for the history of opium. It is very important in terms of understanding the, the background of modern geopolitics as well. 
because a lot of the uh, the cultural uh, tensions, especially politically <laughs> related tensions that have arisen in recent decades between, say, the U.S. and China, understanding something like the context leading up to the Opium Wars and as a result of the Opium Wars, at least in my mind, really helps paint a clearer picture of kind of how, you know, countries got to the position they're in in the first place. Uh, and more specifically, so up until, I'm forgetting the exact year, but already in the 1700s, um, so I guess to let me take a quick step back. So the Portuguese were the first of the European colonizers to get to Asia. The Portuguese went to, uh, they landed in India in 1498. The Spanish had uh, gone the opposite direction, landed in the Americas. Uh, and initially there was this kind of split of the world. I'm forgetting the treaty they signed for it. But there was this kind of split of, you know, uh, pretty much Portugal has Asia uh, and Spain has the Americas. Within a hundred years of that, so by the early 1600s, uh, the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company were both formed, uh, obviously, by, by the respective uh, governments and capitalists in their own countries. And these entities really started pushing out more aggressively in terms of colonial expansion. And so from the 1600s on, there was much more active maneuvering on the part of European countries, especially the British, the Dutch, uh, trying to take over as much land, conquer the resources, find ways to repackage and sell that, make profit in the process. And as that was evolving, and keep in mind, right, that was evolving with zero checks in place. Right now, we, you know, if we hear of a corporate doing something bad, there, or at least in the in the West, you know, there are various things that can potentially be done about it. But even then, at least in my opinion, you know, when you hear a lot of these corporate scandals, the end result falls short of where I would personally like to see it, uh, especially from a punishment of that entity perspective. You know, but back then, this is literally unchecked. Right, this is a group of a uh, group of enterprising entrepreneurs who pretty much convinced their kings or queens of, hey, let us just go conquer the world and figure out how to make some money from the process. And I realize that's an oversimplification of it, but nonetheless, that's what I like to boil it down to because then you know, it, it's in this time that opium starts changing from just another good that can help deal with pain to something that helps that's people who are doing manual labor all the time. It helps them deal with their pain a little better, right? So it becomes- started also becoming uh, recreational. Uh, yeah, yes, to a degree. I, I wouldn't say it's at the point where people were just, you know, I have some free time and some free cash. Let me go smoke some opium. It, it's not as though it was that kind of blase attitude towards it. But it did get to the point where, you know, if, if the colonizer that took over your country is forcing you to do literally backbreaking labor all the time, yeah, smoking some opium at the end of the day might not be the worst idea when it's available, because at the very least, it helps me alleviate my pain. And so there are these other complicated elements to why it started coming up. Another thread and where the, the more commonplace addiction did start arising, especially in the West, was through patent medicines and things like laudanum and pretty much the idea of uh, open source medicine, so to say. Of like, you know, you can come up with your own recipe and then you can market and sell it. And there was little centralized oversight of who was creating it with what substances, the purity of it, etc. So let's shift back into America because our time is almost closing. Let's just say, how did the um, doctors at that time perceive or, or see opium use? 
Yeah. So, I, I mean, yeah, I don't I haven't specifically, say, explored the through the lens of the, the history of addiction. I, I, I have not gone down that exploration specifically yet. But I know in general that by the late 1800s, like, what was the state of some of the sciences, right? Things like sociology, psychology, etc., these were still just beginning to formalize in some kind of systematic approach, as opposed to, you know, just going off of like intuition or, you know, much more out there concepts that uh, were just the norm until more scientific options became, you know, prevalent. And parallel to this, right, in the late 1800s, there is no good pain standard yet, right? Like penicillin, I don't remember if it was officially created yet, but I know it didn't become more popular and start having more of a scientific focus until the 20s. And then really until World War II, when it really became commonplace. And that was a whole separate effort as part of the American effort into World War II was ramping up the American pharmaceutical industry to be able to supply something like penicillin to, uh, to, to the allied powers at the time. So, you know, if we're talking the late 1800s, the understandings of addiction are pretty much at the level of, yes, someone can have a adverse effect when they've been using it every day and they stop, right? That more complexity than that wasn't something that was followed. And, you know, after the uh, Civil War, there are some resources that point to the fact that initially there was an uptick in opium usage from the folks who came back from the Civil War. Uh, and, you know, the, there was the same concern that that was going to happen with folks coming back from Vietnam. And, you know, the, that's not a unique thing in history, but especially in the times when, you know, prior to World War One, that the whole idea of like PTSD didn't exist yet, that, you know, it was just like war syndrome or something like that. And, you know, it, it, it's right. hard to pinpoint the deep understanding of one area because so many disciplines were evolving at the same time that the unfortunate reality was that, a lot of what you're dealing with is just kind of a, you know, kind of a crapshoot of like, you, you never knew what, what you were actually going to yes. get. So you kind of just had to be hopeful of what was happening. So, you know, I, I think that doctors in the late 18 into early 1900s, there were the beginnings of people who were trying to, you know, look at things and say, it's not a question of morality or just a bad choice. There may be certain things that make one more or less likely uh, to have an issue with this. And there was just more nuance trying to get into it and more actual scientific approaches. But I think that up until, at least in the context of addiction, up until the 20s, there, you know, it was just very different because it wasn't fully illegal yet. But with the Harrison right. Narcotics Act. It was Act, taboo. Yes. And so with the Harrison Narcotics Act, that was when doctors started getting penalized for issuing heroin or opiates to uh, to their or morphine or any other opiates to their patients. And that's where the criminalization and that's where the stigma started coming up because in the yes, the penalties started getting so intense that the general drug usage shifted from, say, uh, you know, a lot of housewives and upper class folks who just had time and or money and didn't have something to fill it with that started transitioning to more entertaining, seeking younger folks or to uh, working class males who just needed some kind of outlet. Right. Uh, it started and, becoming um, recreational at that time. Yes. Now. And it started becoming recreational in a way that it was being stigmatized right away. 
because it wasn't just the recreational mm -hmm. thing that like your well-off person in your neighborhood was doing. Like that's what those, you know, promiscuous men and women were doing in the seedy part of the city, right? That's the kind of associations because that seedy part in reality was also where all the poorest folks lived because they didn't have a social safety net. They had no other way of getting help. So yeah, a lot of the things that just people didn't like in society just got stigmatized and none of the underlying elements of why they cropped up in the first place were being dealt with. But I also don't want to minimize that. I don't remember the names off the top of my head, but already as of the 18 into early 1900s, there were some very crucial voices for the modern fight for a better, more nuanced understanding of addiction coming up. They were just few and far in between. Okay, this is Eugene Leventhal. As you can see, it's a fascinating point in history as well. You can learn more about the history of drugs in the podcast, The History of Drugs in Society with Eugene Leventhal. Thank you for dropping by again, Eugene. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a, it was a fun conversation. It's a pleasure. This is William with kpcradio.com. <laughs>